everybody, welcome back to the greatest podcast in American history, also known as Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America. My name is Dylan Shear. I'm your host for this podcast. Today we're talking about the Industrial Revolution in the American South. So last week we talked about the Industrial Revolution in the, uh, the North. So the old Union states now are moving down to what used to be the Confederacy. We're going to be talking about a couple of things here. One, we're talking about Jim Crow this, on this week's podcast. So we're talking about the quote-unquote New South. And we'll also be talking about sort of black cultural life in the South as a result, changing how it changed coming out of the Civil War with sort of the end of slavery in the United States and the beginnings of emancipation. So a couple of major questions for this week that we're going to touch on. One is how did the Industrial Revolution shape the South, right? So what did the Industrial Revolution do? to sort of change the South. South Last week we talked about the North, how it changed the North. You know, we went into immigration, this urbanization stuff. Uh, we've done a bit of an overview on sort of talking about the big technological shifts. We're, and we're going to sort of ask that same question of the South in this episode. Also, we're going to look at sort of who or what was Jim Crow, right? So this big, big word people, a lot of people know, have heard of, the Jim Crow South, right? We're talking about its development and sort of what that meant. We'll also talk about some of the new cultural, new black cultural institutions that developed during this time uh, in the South. And then also sort of was there a new South? You get some people talking about this new South as if it was like a real thing. We're going to ask the question of was it actually a real thing or just something that people sort of hope would be there. But before we get started off with all that, we're going to do what we usually do on these podcasts and sort of talk about a specific individual. In this case, Homer Plessy. You probably heard the name, the court case Plessy versus Ferguson, right? It probably came up in some sort of, you know, history class you had in high school. But we're actually going to look at sort of who Homer Plessy was in that case. So Homer Plessy claimed to be one-eighth black, right? So saying that one of his great-grandparents was black. Uh, and he worked with this group called the Committee des Citoyens, that's French, you know, for Citizens Committee, to help fight segregation laws in the in the South, right? Sort of one, one of a quote here, so you know what sort of is up with the Committee des Citoyens. This is from Rudolf Desdunes. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Apologies to all my French listeners. There, his quote was: "It is more noble and dignified to fight, no matter what, than to show a passive attitude of resignation." Absolute submission augments the oppressor's power and creates doubt about the feelings of the oppressed, right? So they wanted to fight back against what was going on, saying that they had to fight, that just submitting to sort of the rulings of this white, powerful class would just be like sort of rolling over. So what they did was they tried to end segregation on the railroads in the South, right? Uh, Railroads have been segregated. You know, there's a white car, a black car. And Homer Plessy, claiming to be, you know, this one-eighth black man, which by this sort of one-drop rule, if you had any sort of, you know, quote-unquote non-white blood, that meant you weren't white. So he goes onto the the white car, so he says, I'm an eighth black, and gets arrested for this. And this case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court makes their sort of famous uh, separate but equal ruling with Homer v. Plessy, saying that segregation is legal in the United States. There just has to be sort of separate facilities for both. Obviously, that equal part is nonsense bullshit. It was never equal, but this 18, and this happened in 1896, right? So it's 1896, Homer v. Plessy case sort of created this, the legal background for segregation in the United States. So this Committee des Citoyens, they lost their case, but they were still sort of fighting for rights throughout the South even after that. 
Interestingly enough, there is no known photo of Homer Plessy. If you Google Homer Plessy, a, a picture will pop up that is actually not Homer Plessy. You might have actually seen that in a, a book or a lecture before, but here to you know do some service for you. That is actually a photo of this guy, PBS Pinchback, who was the 24th governor of Louisiana. He's the first black governor unelected. Served for a month after the elected governor was impeached. He's actually part of that committee de citoyens, right? That helped get Plessy arrested for his court case. And his is the photo that pops up, which is interesting enough. So PBS Pinchback is when you Google image search Homer Plessy is the guy who pops up. Most people don't realize that and sort of just put that photo in there saying this is Homer Plessy, but that's actually not the case. So a lot of times when you're sort of talking about history, you you, t- you hear about Homer v. Plessy, right? This very, sorry, Plessy v. Ferguson, this very important case. And then you sort of, you lose track of Homer Plessy. But Homer Plessy lived, right, till uh, 1925, so a long time after the 1896 case. As a result of that decision, he was forced to pay a $25 fine. He worked in sort of various odd jobs for the rest of his life. He never really found sustained success. He started out as a shoemaker, uh, and he died March 1st, 1925. He sort of was no longer really involved in this in this sort of activist work a- uh, after that case. But it's so important to sort of know that who these people are, right? He's not just some name on a, a court document. Homer Plessy was a real God. Okay, so moving on to our first of our big three topics here, we're going to talk about the New South, right? This question of sort of what was going to happen to the South after the end of the Civil War. So some background information to know. Uh, the Civil War largely had destroyed the infrastructure and even a lot of the, just the cities of the South, especially places, if you, General Sherman, this very famous Union general, went on his famous march to the sea, burned down much of Georgia. Other sort of campaigns in the South had destroyed cities like Richmond. If you Google sort of post-1865 Richmond, you'll get these pictures versus these husked out buildings, right, destroyed by cannons and fire from the fighting of the Civil War. So they had to rebuild the South, right? And even on top of that, you get the Industrial Revolution in the North, you get all these new factories, all these new jobs. The South didn't really have that sort of base to build off of. Their economy prior to the Civil War had been largely agricultural, right, based on cotton, so they did have cotton king and slavery, meaning that they didn't have the same amount of railroads, they didn't have the same amount of factories already being built. So they were lagging, lagging behind the North in terms of economic development. But some people saw sort of the end of the Civil War and the rebirth of the Industrial Revolution as a chance to build a new South. One of those guys, most famously, was known as Henry Grady. He was the editor of the Atlanta Constitution, a newspaper in Atlanta, and he had a famous speech. I know it's weird to think about, sort of, right? You don't think of newspaper editors as giving famous speeches anymore, but at the time, newspaper editors were sort of a big deal, right? They were these big personalities. And so people listened when he spoke, and he said now, and the, the speech was titled The New South, which is where we get that name from. He said this was the time, right? This Industrial Revolution was the time for the South to catch up to the North in terms of industry, in terms of building sort of all this new South, building a new economy. He said that they, the South should integrate itself into the new industries of the North, build new industries of the of its own. He sort of, his idea was that the this post-Civil War South would no longer be built upon the uh, built upon the subjugation of an entire people, right? So it does have this sort of element of like slavery's over, we can't rely on that anymore. 
uh, Grady was right about a couple things. The South would start to build up its own industry, build up its own new economy, but those economies was still built on the subjugation of black people all across the South. So you do get these new industries emerging in the 35 years after the Civil War, the sort of period we're looking at. Several new cities emerge as population centers in the South, but you still do get this massive, massive, massive subjugation of black people at the end of the Civil War. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about the Jim Crow. But for now, we're going to look at some of these new industries. So some of the industries that get built up in the South are similar to the ones that get built up in the North. You have railroads, you have iron, which is different than steel, but still important. You also have cotton and textile industries in the South and tobacco industries in the South, sort of these two ones that are much different than the ones in the North. So let's go through those one by one. The first one we'll look at is railroads. So just like in the North, right, railroads are massively, massively important for the Industrial Revolution. You have to get stuff places. They bring in a lot of jobs. They bring in a lot of money. They allow goods to be transported across the U.S. So prior to the Civil War, the, U- the South's railroads had not been built up. They had a very, very small amount. If you look at sort of the map in 1850 to the map in 1900, you see just how massively they grew the railroad network in the South in under 50 years. Just like in the North, there was like it's almost impossible to overstate how much corruption there was in building the railroads and who got these contracts. We've already talked a lot about sort of the absolute bribing that went on. So I won't go into that. I won't go more into that here, but needless to say, there was already, there was a lot of bribing going on in the South for who got these contracts. These railroads didn't just connect cities in the South. They also connected cities in the South to other places in the North and the West, allowing for raw goods to be shipped, completed goods to be shipped. People would move around. Just some stats here. In 1880, there were 16,000 miles of track in the South. And by 1890, there were 39,000 miles of track in the South, right? So you get these absolute doubling monster numbers of tracks growth even in just 10 years iron was also a really big industry i know i say iron weird i apologize for that bear with me just like how steel helped grow the rail industry in the north iron helped grow the rail industry in the south you know they they could use iron uh, as well as steel so you get places like birmingham cities like birmingham becoming big producers of both steel and iron grew very very quickly in the immediate post-civil war period. Then you also get cotton and textiles. Textiles, right? These clothes, shirtwaists, anything sort of made of stuff like cotton. It makes sense that this would grow up in the South, right? The South had access to all this cotton. These raw goods might as well make it there, right? Start transforming it into completed goods, not just raw materials in your own backyard. This work was very, very dangerous in these textile mills, very harsh work, long hours. You're breathing in all these sort of cotton threads, which is awful for your throat, for your breathing. People often have to work 14-hour days, right, at these factories where they're just going faster and faster and faster. They were very low paid, but even with that, they were still seen as sort of industrial good jobs. So often they were reserved for white people only, right? Black people weren't allowed to work in the factories. Uh, very much just racist ideas of who could handle this machinery. And then that these were better jobs than, say, working in the field. They weren't given to black people. The other big industry you get is tobacco. The king of the tobacco king, James Buchanan Duke, the Duke of Duke University, 
as I meant, you know, we keep getting all these university guys. He was sort of the king of Southern tobacco. What allowed him to become king of Southern tobacco was the invention of the automatic cigarette rolling machine. So instead of, you know, people having to hand roll cigarettes, which is what was happening before the invention of this, now you could get a machine to do it. And this, you know, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it quadrupled, decuppled, whatever, greatly increased the number of cigarettes a company could make over time. The thing was, you might think that Duke here invented this automatic cigarette rolling machine. This invention allowed him to become super rich and wealthy. No, wrong. This guy, James Bonsack, invented it, and Duke just sort of reaped the rewards of that invention. Uh, he started the American Tobacco Company, bought out over 200 competitors sort of along the way, and was the, the tobacco king, just like how Carnegie was the, the steel king at the time. So you had these more sort of titans, a cigarette titan. titan. But that sort of the boom of industry in the South didn't last, right? You get the growth, the massive growth very quickly of textiles, of steel, of iron, of railroads in the South. But that, that, that success isn't sustained. It's not a long-term success. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, this new South industry, right, was built primarily on loans from northern companies, northern banks. The problem with that is, is that having to pay these real loans, right, repeat the, when you get a loan, you have to pay the money back. That money would go back into the North. So it left the South, right? You get a lot of these new profits, a lot of this new money, not staying in the South, not helping rebuild, not building up, you know, industry in the South, but going back to the North. Northerners didn't really care about rebuilding the South, right? They just wanted, these banks just wanted profits. They don't really care if the South rebuilt its industry, rebuilt its cities. They just wanted more money. And then you get the competition from the North that sort of killed a lot of the iron business, especially in the South, right? They just couldn't compete with these industries that had already been there for a couple of years, but your experts, they just couldn't compete with it at all. On top of that, many black people were barred from employment in these new industries, which kept wages uh, for whites really low and limited the amount of money being recirculated back into the economy, right? You don't have this competition for wages, so wages are sort of kept artificially low. They're still, you know, they're seen as whites only jobs, but in return for that, the, the actual workers get paid a lot less. So they have less money to put back into local economies. This racism is helping destroy the South. So along with the failure of these in new industries, you also get the rise of Jim Crow. So this is another one of those terms people hear a lot, right? You know, they, the new Jim Crow is that book that came out a couple of years ago talking about this. But where does that sort of term come from? It started out in 1830. There was this minstrel singer, so this traveling entertainer, a guy named Thomas Daddy Rice, nicknamed Daddy, began using blackface, right? So he's a white guy, painted his face black, and would sing a song entitled Jumping Jim Crow about the sort of very cartoonish, very racist depiction of a slave. By 1850, by an enslaved person, by 1850, that song had become sort of standard in minstrel acts across the U.S. But at this point, Jim Crow still sort of just referred to the sort of cartoonishly racist depiction of an enslaved person. By the 1880s, however, it had become the name for this sort of system of segregation that was being built in the South with Reconstruction, with the end of slavery. We talked a little bit about this, you know, in the Reconstruction podcast, but with the end of that Reconstruction, sort of white Southern, white Southerners rebuilt their power, reestablished their power, cultural power, political power, social power in the South. And part of the way they did that was through this legal discrimination with this Jim Crow system. The, that Plessy versus Ferguson ruling was part of that. 
right? The separate but equal bullshit is sort of built, uh, was a main, main part of Jim Crow. So what did this sort of legal discrimination that the Plessy versus Ferguson allowed look like in the South? And here, just a quick note, it's important to remember that this racism, segregation, and disenfranchisement existed all throughout the United States, even in the North, right? It was less visible, perhaps, in some places, but it sort of existed very much outside of the South as well, even though the South is what gets remembered the most in these conversations sort of because they did have those a lot of these crazy crazy laws in the south that allowed for it where in the north it was sort of still as violent uh virulent but sort of a little more hidden so despite the passages of those reconstruction era laws like the 13th 14th and 15th amendments the civil rights act of 1875 black people were sort of consistently denied their life liberty and the pursuit of happiness in the south through a couple of ways right through political repression through social intimidation, violence, sort of these very common tools were used to keep the keep black and white people separate. So you have laws that ban black people from attending the same schools as white people. Every public place in the South was segregated. You get trains segregated, restaurants, hotels, et cetera, et cetera, right? Everything is segregated. And so why did the South develop this system? Basically, sort of these white planners were still alive after the Civil War, and they wanted to maintain the power they had in sort of the pre-Civil War society, right? They wanted to maintain those racial hierarchies that allowed them to be really, really rich, really well off while everyone else was beneath them. For them, that sort of power that they had in the South was based solely upon the domination of those social dynamics of slavery, right? Without Slavery, however, they needed something new to maintain that power, right? To see themselves as better than everyone else. So what happened was they developed these segregation systems, right? They gave themselves the better schools. Everything else was better. Uh, They also developed, quote-unquote, scientific, once again, very much heavily in quotes, theories like eugenics, sort of the hierarchy hierarchy of races bullshit ideas that sort of were claiming whites were superior and therefore should have control over the other races. Obviously, this is stupid bullshit, just racism and ways just to sort of maintain their power. It wasn't just sort of the rich people that helped with the system, though. A lot of times, poor white workers saw newly freed black people as competitors and sort of the reason why they were poor. This wasn't always the case at the beginning, right? This was very much encouraged encouraged by those uh, wealthy planters. As we saw during Reconstruction, a lot of times at the beginning of Reconstruction, you get poor white farmers working hand-in-hand with black farmers trying to make a better life for themselves until the sort of racial segregation is pushed by these richer whites hoping to create those discord, create those cleavages among these sort of poor people who might have found a lot more in common with each other if it hadn't been for this these disruptions. The Democratic Party also had a huge hand in this, as we saw with the Redeemers. They ran and encouraged all the segregation. So that was the big, big plank of the Democratic Party in the South, was maintaining segregation at all costs. And along with that, the Republican Party didn't really care anymore about sort of fighting to end it, right? They had other concerns. White people in the Republican Party cared more often about the economy at this point, and were no longer 
longer interested in sort of ending segregation or helping black people make a better life for themselves in the U.S. You also get the development of something called the myth of the lost cause in the in the wake of the Civil War, which is people in the South mainly arguing that slavery was not the cause of the Civil War, but it was Northern aggression that sort of ruined the peaceful relationship between enslaved people and their owners. Right? This is and this you still see this around today. It's a sort of it's completely false. This idea that you know the war was fought over states' rights or that um, it was just like the North you know was coming in there to destroy the the quote unquote peculiar institution of the South bullshit. There's so much writing from just before the Civil War and during the Civil War of people in the South, leaders in the Confederacy, talking about how this was a war over slavery, right? Everyone knew the Civil War was fought about slavery. And so this is sort of just a rewriting of history. You get a lot of groups uh, in the South who made textbooks. You get sort of daughters of the Confederacy, mothers of the Confederates, writing all these textbooks that sort of proclaim this lost cause myth. But all of this stuff sort of helps build up this new system, this new Jim Crow system in the South, right? It's not just one thing. It's this combination of all this racism coming together in many different ways to create this Jim Crow idea. And what's interesting about this, why this is in the Industrial Revolution sort of section, is that in a lot of ways, the Industrial Revolution helped create uh, the prolifer- uh, create sort of the situation that allowed for the proliferation of this Jim Crow, not only the name of it, but also the system, right? Obviously, the, Jim- the Industrial Revolution isn't the only reason, but it's a big part of it. For even for just disseminating the Jim Crow name, right? The Industrial Revolution introduces printing techniques, which make it very easy for songbooks to be printed. It gives some people extra money, allowing them to go see these minstrel shows spreading this Jim Crow image. You also get these new sort of economic systems, right? The of poor white workers against poor black workers helps create this Jim Crow system, uh, which wouldn't have been there without the Industrial Revolution or wouldn't have been as strong without the Industrial Revolution. You also get these new, you know, quote-unquote scientific theories that were in part developed by sort of new technologies and new researches coming out of the Industrial Revolution. So what are some other things that go on in the South that allow Jim Crow to spread? Well, the big sort of, one of the big, big things was disenfranchisement, right? So outside of segregation, and there's also the lack of voting rights for black people in the South. After, you know, the end of Reconstruction, we sort of saw the, the use of federal troops to maintain voting laws and sort of the success of the first Mississippi plan, which we talked about in that first podcast, which was, you know, sort of this violent intimidation. You see Democrats in the South enacting what's called the second Mississippi plan. This began in Mississippi in 1890 and refers to not just violent intimidation, but a series of actual laws that prevented black people from voting all across the South. And states in the South followed Mississippi's practices, passed these laws, which basically denied every non-person, every non-white person the right to vote. They did this through a couple of ways. One is through poll taxes, requiring people to pay to vote. Also, literacy tests and property requirements. These were extremely, extremely effective, right? Saying you need to take this literacy test. And this wasn't just sort of, you know, you proved to read. It's like it was made specifically to be very confusing. And was awfully and was just given to black people only, right? There's plenty of records of white people just sort of writing an X for their name and being allowed to vote, and then black people being being asked these insane questions or just not even allowed to vote, right? A lot of times, they even go through that whole rigmarole. It was just some white guy saying that they failed the test. For an example of how sort of successful this was, by 1904, only 1,342 black people were able to vote in Louisiana, a 90% decline from 1896. 
right? So it's eight years. You get a 90% drop in the amount of black people who could vote in Louisiana. That's how effective this sort of second dis- second Mississippi plan, this disenfranchisement in the South was. It has only allowed white people to vote. And it's not just laws, right? Violence is sort of the basis of segregation in the South, the basis of Jim Crow. Lynching is sort of the big one that people know, right? Between the 1880s and 1890s, nearly 2,000 black men in the South were lynched. That's just in the South. That's not including how many people were lynched all across the United States. It wasn't just the South that saw lynching. It was everywhere in the United States. And it wasn't just black people who were lynched either. You also get political radicals, quote unquote class or quote unquote race traitors, right? So people who tried to help black people uh, were lynched as well. It was very much a tool of intimidation, a tactic to keep segregation alive. There were people who fought against this still, despite the threats against their life. Uh, Chicago's own Ida B. Wells was sort of one of the great anti-lynching activists, the most famous in 1892. She published a pamphlet, Southern Horrors, which described sort of the, the violence of these lynchings in the South. She started her activism after three of her friends were lynched in Memphis, right? This is what prompted her to write that pamphlet, Southern Horrors. She was sort of attacked for her work throughout her life and lived under constant threats of violence for it. But despite that, continued to work and fight against segregation. There's also other people fighting against segregation, right? People didn't just let this slide and let it happen without fighting against it. We talked about Homer Plessy, right? And Plessy versus Ferguson, the Committee de Citoyens. There's also, we're going to talk about some other movements right here to stop segregation. One, we'll talk about the Atlanta Compromise. We're talking about the Niagara Movement. We're talking about some cultural institutions that build up to help fight against segregation. And we'll talk about work in the fields of education and religion to try to fight segregation. And this sort of ties in with the new development of this black cultural life in the South as well, right? That sort of third topic. So I won't go too much into Plessy versus Ferguson, right? This uh, sort of trying to to fight this segregation that was going on. They ended up losing that fight, created the separate but equal doctrine, but showed people that they could fight against this, right? They didn't have to sit back and sort of not fight against the segregation. So the next one is the Atlanta Compromise. So this is was put forward by Booker T. Washington in what's called his Five Finger Speech in 1895. So Booker T. Washington, sort of a very famous figure during the Jim Crow period. His approach was more accommodationist, right? He argued that black people should focus on their own economic success, which in turn would lead to political and civil rights. So using growing, showing how you can build your wealth, right? Saying black people are important for the economy, they're useful in the United States, and then people will see this usefulness and give them, grant them political and civil rights. This idea of self-help, right, within the black community would stop racial violence and lead to progress. These ideas were enormously influential in both black and white communities up into the 20th century, right? Lots of people supported Booker T. Washington. He had a lot of followers, a lot of people who sort of supported these ideas of saying that, you know, the problem's of segregation are really real. The problems of Jim Crow South are really real, but the solution isn't to fight back physically against them, but to just show how important black people are to the economy. You also get something, people who disagree with that, right? Uh, most famously represented by W.E.B. Du Bois with his Niagara movement. His This was an attempt to organize black activists, and it was very much a critique of Washington, right? He said, no, like, this is wrong. Can't. This is a, a bad way to do it. Uh, he's very 
like you can't just like sort of agree that this is happening. I have to sort of fight against it. Du Bois would organize the NAACP and write sort of the most influential history of Reconstruction, which I mentioned called Black Reconstruction. And he very much was like, we have to sort of fight for our legal rights, right? In the courts, can't just wait for people to give them to us. We have to push back against these through the court system. And you also get the growth of some some cultural institutions, right? Fighting against segregation, celebrating the end of slavery. One is the development of the Juneteenth holiday. This first emerged in Texas as a celebration of the end of slavery, right? Marking the date when the enslaved people in Texas learned, learned of their freedom. This holiday would later become a focal point in sort of the fight against segregation. Along with that, you also get tour companies who are producing items like the, the so-called Green Book that help black people take vacations in the South safely and across the United States, right? Saying here are places to avoid, here are places you can go safely. So helping each other out through these things like the Green Book. Recently, a big HBO series uh, that very much involved the Green Book. You also get education, people focusing on education as a way to fight segregation. Uh, these ideas of literacy, education becoming a huge, huge part of this fight, saying, you know, we have to educate ourselves to help fight against segregation. Uh, you see in the post-Civil War period, black literacy rates are growing very, very quickly, going through the roof, right? The first time that black people were legally allowed to learn how to read in the South. You get the development of schools, schools like Fisk University, Howard, and Atlanta University, sort of all forming to provide black people with education, with higher education. Booker T. Washington started the Tuskegee Institute, and that sort of quickly became the most prominent of those institutions. His Tuskegee Institute more focused on preparing people for work than the arts and sciences, but not every school did that. You also get sort of focus on religion as a, as a way to fight segregation, right? One of these centers of, of anti-segregation work. Churches and church leaders became hugely important in this fight, and we'll see that when we talk about the civil rights movement in the you know 50s and 60s, that's still the case. You get the growth of the Baptist Church and the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church. You've seen those signs. Sort of those were the two of the biggest denominations in the South, especially. They developed these systems of welfare, community support. They hosted political meetings and sort of other groups. Right, that's one of the places where black people could meet without sort of interruption and being watched by white folks to help organize politically. So that's sort of the end of our discussion today on the podcast. You see how the Industrial Revolution sort of brought a lot of promise to the South, right? These potentials for great changes. But in the end, similarly, similarly as it did in the North, it sort of made a few people very rich and kept most people very poor. It was sort of the Industrial Revolution was a massive factor in the creation of the system of segreg racial segregation in the South known as Jim Crow, right? Without the Industrial Revolution, Jim Crow would not have looked the way it did today. Today. And you see black people all across the country, not just in the South, fighting back against this segregation, but finding little to no support at sort of the federal or state level, right? White people weren't willing to help them fight back against this segregation in sort of the massive, massive ways that they were during the Civil War. So next week, thanks again for listening to this podcast where we're talking about the industrializing West. And one, one quick note before we go here, I do want to mention some of the textbooks that I'm using to help sort of prepare. One is called... Uh, uh, History Volume 5 by 
Kevin Schultz, who's a professor at UIC. And then also I'm using what's called the American YAP, which is this sort of textbook, a free textbook online put together by a bunch of professors. So if you're looking for some more information and wondering where I'm getting a lot of mine, right, some of it is from my own research, but then also a lot of it is from sort of uh, available textbooks as well, right? I'm not a genius and I should sort of cite my sources here. But with that, thank you so much for listening. Oh, and if you want some books on this, right, this sort of Jim Crow South, I have a couple of recommendations for you as well. You have a couple of things here. One, sort of, I would check out City of Inmates by Kelly Lytle Hernandez, looking at the growth of sort of the use of the prison system as a way to keep the sort of segregation in check. I would look at this long, uh, this article by Jacqueline Hall called The Long Civil Rights Movement, something we'll talk about a little later. And uh, Black Reconstruction, uh, once again, I'll recommend that by Du Bois, uh, sort of one of the greatest sort of looks at this post-Civil War period in the South. Once again, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Be sure to follow and subscribe on Dang Dude What the Heck so you can continue getting future episodes and have a great rest of your day.